Let's prepare our hearts and minds to receive the scripture and the message today. Mighty God, reveal to us the wisdom of your living word. Fill this place with your power of your presence, conveyed in the gospels. Help us rest in your eternal life, hope in your resurrection, and trust your words and teaching preserved for us in these holy scriptures. Amen. Now hear the scripture reading from Mark chapter 12, uh, 18 through 27. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning, everyone. Uh, I recently listened to Bono's autobiography, Surrender. Uh, he kind of tells the story of his life and the formation of his band, U2, uh, kind of through the lens of 40 of their top songs. And in the early chapters, he describes this, this tension that kind of shaped their direction and their future as a band together. Uh, three of the members had come to a vibrant Christian faith in a uh, in some sort of Christian community that was in one of their neighborhood in Dublin. And one of the members and their manager, on the other hand, they had no time for this whatsoever. And so these early days of their, of their life as a band, they were, there was kind of this internal wrestling match between ardent faith and doubt and this shared passion that they all had together for music. And ultimately, the three uh, who were Christians decided that they were going to offer their music as a kind of gift to God. And so in these early days, uh, it changed how they, they saw what they were doing. Uh, they would go to these gigs and they would be playing to empty rooms. And that didn't discourage them. It changed the way that they saw it. They reframed their disappointment into a kind of holy intent. Bono wrote this, he said, we played clubs, empty clubs, but we played them like it was a stadium. We played them like it was Madison Square Garden. And, and I wonder if you've ever met someone who is so passionate about what they do, uh, so passionate about bringing beauty or truth or goodness into the world that you cannot help but kind of be brought along with them. People like that, they awaken a sense of holiness in everyday, ordinary things. A few years later, as we all know, U2 was selling out stadiums. It was the same band doing the same 
thing, but now the passion that they had, even in those early days, could not be ignored. Jewish philosopher Martin Buber talked about this practice of infusing ordinary things with meaning. This idea he called kavana. And he notes this. Man exerts influence on the eternal. And this is not done by any special works, but by the intention with which he does all his works. This is the teaching of the hallowing of the everyday. He who does a good deed with complete kavana, that is, completes an act in such a way that his whole existence is gathered in it and directed in it towards God, he works on the redemption of the world. What Buber and Bono kind of clued into is that what you believe about the future will have everything to do with how you act in the present. Whether you treat life or work as a series of you know, discouragements or, or inconveniences, or whether you're just say, able to see in those same things holiness in the ordinary, Well, that's how you work on the redemption of the world. And that's just a little bit of the subtext that's beneath the surface as Jesus finds himself in another controversy with religious leaders. This time, the subject of controversy is over the resurrection. Prior to his time in Jerusalem, Jesus' beef has primarily been with a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees. But when he comes into the holy city, he runs into another group who are responsible for the oversight of the temple. And that group is called the Sadducees. And while these two groups have a lot of things in common, uh, both seem to have risen in prominence around the time of the Maccabean Revolt, around the second century BC, they're both religious authorities within Judaism. But that is exactly kind of where their similarities end. Their theological outlook, their social position differed greatly. We've got a chart kind of showing these differences that they have. The Sadducees belonged to the highest social stratum of Jewish society. According to one first century historian, they were men of rank marked by wealth. And maybe the best analogy is to think of them as the educated, you know, New England aristocratic Ivy League types, the ones who were born into privilege and, and position through connection, you know, the ones who kind of were born on third base and spent their whole life thinking that they hit a triple, right? Uh, th- this group, they emphasized the, the priestly role. They oversaw the sacrificial system of the temple. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they were the ones who emphasized teaching. They were the ones mostly concerned about the everyday lived dimension of the faith. And this came out of the fact that the Sadducees only accepted as scripture the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Those were the ones, the books of Moses, that they saw as authoritative. And their chief rivals, the Pharisees, They viewed them with suspicion because in addition to the law, the Pharisees saw as authoritative books like the histories, the prophets, the Psalms, uh, the wisdom writings, all the rest of what we call the Old Testament. But they also counted as authoritative a collection of rabbinic teachings known as the Mishnah. uh, And from this, this book or this collection of teachings flowed 613 commands that the Pharisees believed that every faithful Jew must keep. Pharisees were also sympathetic to the revolutionaries 
who wanted the Gentiles out. And by comparison, the Sadducees were way more relaxed. They were more cosmopolitan in their outlook on the world. They saw value in Greek philosophy and Greek culture and their contributions. They tended to cooperate with Roman rule. And and I bring all of this up just to note that I think it's easy when you're reading the Bible to kind of have this monolithic view of the religion of the day. But that is no more true of them than it is of us. I mean, if you look at Christianity right now, like there is such a spectrum of belief. The the Pharisees and the Sadducees saw each other as rivals for the true faith of Israel. Add to that, there were also like other religious groups there. Uh, There's one called the, the Essenes who would live in caves, you know, kind of waiting for the world to end. Uh, they were like the Mandalorians who didn't remove their helmets, right? For all the nerds out there like me. Uh, there are, all that is, there's just layers of complexity. Jesus challenged all of these groups, but he challenged them for very different reasons. And so with that, the Sadducees, they come to Jesus with this question about the resurrection, which Mark tells us they don't believe in. And Jesus, on the other hand, not only believes in the resurrection, but he has staked his credibility on the fact that he will experience resurrection. And the reason that the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection is because, like I said, they only have the first five books of the Bible. And if you were to have just a cursory glance at those first five books, uh, they, they speak only vaguely about Sheol, which is this kind of you know, place akin to the you know, pale netherworld, this place where the dead go. It is silent about life after death, let alone what N.T. Wright calls the Christian view, which is life after death life after death. I'll say more about that because I imagine you're confused. So if you only had the first five books of the Bible to go on, and you only, you know, glanced at them just a little bit, it would be really easy to conclude that this life is all that there is. You, You try to eke out an existence, you know, you're born, you try to scrap some money together, and then you die. But as you go on throughout the the Bible, the unfolding story of the Old Testament, Resurrection begins to get foreshadowed in passages like Ezekiel 37, this vision of a valley of dry bones coming to life. It finds its way into the prophetic vision of Isaiah, into the poetry of the Psalms, and then into Daniel's apocalypse during the exile. So that by the time that Jesus comes on the scene, belief in the resurrection was widespread. It was actively taught by the Pharisees, and they had way more cultural influence than the Sadducees. In fact, this quote's been up here for a a little while, the resurrection was an explicit part of the faith, according to the Pharisees. This is from the Mishnah. And these are the exceptions, the people who will have no share in the world to come, even when they have fulfilled many mitzvot, commands, The one who says, there is no resurrection of the dead derived from the Torah. So if you want to take a shot at your uh, your opponents, just make it into your scripture, right? And the one who says, the Torah did not originate from heaven. And an epikoros, or a heretic, one who treats the Torah scholars and the Torah that they teach with contempt. This whole teaching is based on like, hey, we're the ones who are right, they're the ones that are wrong. Now, the Pharisees, on the other hand, they, they, they taught, and, and most Jews believed that the 
dividing line of history consisted of two ages or periods of time, this age and the age to come. This age is marked by sin and rebellion. It's the story of life after Eden. It's the story of human evil in the form of violence, injustice, oppression, of natural evil in the form of sickness and pain, earthquakes, wildfires, uh, viruses, but it's also the world of spiritual evil, powers and principalities, a consciousness that is willed toward destruction of creation, and in the end of all of that is death. But in the age to come, this would signal the recovery of Eden, what the Hebrew prophets called the return of shalom, what Jesus called the the kingdom of heaven, an age that is marked by the reign and rule of God, a return to the way things were supposed to be all along, where where peace and justice and flourishing, they're the ones that rule the day. And in between this, this present age and the age to come, there was the day of the Lord, which was kind of a hinge between these two ages, and it would signal this drastic, world-altering end to the status quo. It was a day of judgment for those who lived in opposition to the peace of God. It was a day of jubilee for the poor and for the oppressed and those who longed for the world to be set to rights. And all of the revolutionaries in Jesus' time were banking on the Messiah as the one who was going to come and kick off this day of the Lord as a time when God was going to start cleaning house. Now, the Sadducees' view, on the other hand, was perhaps best summed up in a collection of writings from the first century known as the Book of Wisdom. It's kind of a synthesis of Greek and Hebrew thought. This is just a portion of it. Short and sorrowful is our life, and there is no remedy when a life comes to its end. No one has been known to return from Hades, for we were born by mere chance, and hereafter we shall be as though we had never been. For the breath in our nostrils is smoke, and reason is a spark kindled by the beating of our hearts. When it is extinguished, the body will turn to ashes, and the spirit will dissolve like empty air." Real fun to be around at a party, these guys. But there's kind of a distinctly sort of modern sort of sound to that, right? In a world without resurrection, there, there can be joy and, and beauty and, and goodness for sure. But all of those things will be at war with the instinct for self-preservation. And that, that, that tension between those two will have a profound way, you know, effect on the way that you live your life. Wisdom writer goes on to describe the implications of this worldview. Come, therefore, let us enjoy the good things that exist. Let us make use of the creation full as in youth. Let us take our fill of costly wine and perfumes and let no flower of spring pass us by. Let us crown ourselves with rosebuds before they wither. Let none of us fail to eat at Iberian Pig every Tuesday night. Let us... Enjoy everywhere our revelry, share in it everywhere. Let us leave signs of enjoyment because this is our portion and this is our lot. In other words, if it is all going to end, then pleasure and beauty and youth is as good as it gets. So live like there is no tomorrow. And so the Sadducees, they thought of something like resurrection as not only theologically suspect, 
But they thought it was also politically dangerous because if you believe that in the age to come you will receive this glorious new body, then you will have every incentive to speed the day of the Lord along by engaging in revolutionary activity. And wealthy ruling classes of people for whom the existing order of things work do not want people having thoughts like that. And so they're trying to size Jesus up. He, he, he's coming in here and he's, he's saying things that sound like he's trying to mount this one-man revolutionary roadshow, but then he's, he doesn't quite seem to be on the same page as the, the dangerous elements of you know, the revolutionaries that kind of side with the Pharisees. So, so whose side is Jesus on? So they come up with this plan to see if they can catch him. It's a little sort of a logic trap by which they think they are going to blow up this ridiculous superstition of resurrection and force Jesus' hand. And so they tell a story based on an ancient practice from Deuteronomy where if a man dies but does not have a child, his younger brother is then commanded to marry his older brother's widow and then count the children that come from that as his brother's and not his. So, to ensure, you know, kind of his, his brother's inheritance and to make sure that his brother's widow is cared for. In an ancient, you know, honor-shame culture where refusal to heed the law would be disastrous for the woman and bring shame upon the family, this is the kind of laws you get. And so there's this protocol, and I have to read this from Deuteronomy because it's awesome. If the brother were to say, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. This man's line shall be known in all of Israel as the family of the unsandaled. I mean, how great is that? I think we got to bring that one back. And this is why you read the Old Testament, because it's fun. So this is some good stuff. So some of you may pick up actually too that this is, actually, this is the mechanism that drives all of the drama in the book of Ruth. It's about this law and what happens. And so the Sadducees, they take this obscure law and they come up with the mother of all hypotheticals. This happens seven times to one woman. All of the brothers die, leaving her childless, and then she dies. But I got to say, like, at what point are people wondering, like, what is going on with this woman? Like, seven dead bodies? <laughs> like, what is the deal? That's not the point. The point is Jesus doesn't take the bait. He doesn't follow their logic. Instead, he says to the leaders in public, you don't know either the scriptures or the power of God. And, and this is like standing up in the middle of a crowded lecture hall and saying to the chair of the economics department, you don't know jack about the markets or finances. And then peacing out. Scripture and power were exactly what these guys were about. And he's telling them everything you think you know about how the world works is dead wrong. And so he gives them two arguments. In the first one, he says, look, the resurrected life is not like a prolonged earthly life. It is life in an entirely different dimension, one that needs a new language, one that needs a new vocabulary. They will be like angels in heaven. It's this way of saying that God's power to restore and create life breaks the limits of your imagination. 
And so one quick implication here, because I'm sure some of you are wondering, like, wait, no one marries, no one's given in marriage in the life to come. We'll be like, what the heck is this about? And I just want to say, I think it's really speculative to build firm theological convictions on passages like this. Like if you could, there are many commentaries that take this passage and conclude that marriage won't be a thing in the life to come. And for sure, it could mean that. But that's not actually what Jesus says. He says, in the age to come, people will neither marry or be given in marriage. And it's very possible that Jesus is describing the kind of gender-specific roles in a first-century culture where men's are, men are the ones who marry and women are the ones who are given in marriage by a father or a, a family member or something like that. And he, he could simply be saying that marriages like the scenario they are describing, like this law in Deuteronomy, they will make no sense in the kingdom because the whole reason those laws exist is because of death. And what do you do in a world where death is off the table? So what does that mean then for existing marriage relationships, for things like sexuality, for things like engendered bodies? Lean in, I'm going to tell you a secret. I have no idea. And that's what I'm getting at. The reason the Bible uses metaphor and, and simile when describing the new heaven and the new earth is because it is groping at things at the very limits of our imagination. Uh, I was thinking about this week. Uh, let me give you an analogy. Imagine for a moment trying to describe the sunset over the ocean to someone who has never been able to see, never had sight. Like, how would you convey the meaning of color? How would you talk about the, the, the changing palette of colors that arise when the sun drops below the horizon? How, how would you describe the, the swirl of the waves as they break against the rocks? How would you talk about any of that? I mean, at best, you would come up with approximations. You would take the experience from one language family to, and then try to lay it over another, which, for which there's no exact correspondence. You, maybe you would describe your emotional state, or you talk about the, the swirl of the waves as kind of like a, a soft, you know, cottony feeling or something like that, or, or, or you talk about how, you know, the color is kind of like a, a cold feeling that grows gradually warmer, or... The, you'd have to use your imagination. And that's Jesus' first point, is that resurrection is a reality. It is not some spiritualized version of life as we know it. It is a fundamental transformation, the likes of which we can only hint at. But the second thing that Jesus does, which is brilliant, is that he goes back then to the part of the scriptures that they do agree on, and he pulls out a quote from Exodus where God appears to Moses in the burning bush and introduces himself like this, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And with this one line, Jesus makes the point that God's promises are in the present tense. I am the God of your ancestors, not I was the God of your ancestors he is describing a relationship which is a present and ongoing reality. If they are simply dead and gone, then God's promises mean nothing. Israel's hope has no foundation. 
If God intends anything other than resurrection, then Abraham does not become the father of many nations. Israel's hope is, is absolutely meaningless. And so to Jesus, this is not some petty theological argument. This is about the very nature and character of the God he calls Father, whose desire to be with us in relationship is strong enough even to defeat death. Ultimately, this is not simply a misunderstanding of Scripture. This is a failure of imagination and a failure to, of nerve to believe in a God whose, whose yes to life is louder than death's no, a God whose power is strong enough to create something out of nothing. And I cannot help but wonder if that is not the challenge for us. I mean, we're all Sadducees now. It is so easy to suffer from the same failure of imagination when it comes to the life to come. Thomas Merton has this, this bit of wisdom. It says, a life is either spiritual, all spiritual, or not spiritual at all. Your life is shaped by the end you live for. Like I said at the beginning, whatever view of the future you have, it's going to have a profound implication on how you live in the present. And the dominant view of resurrection, at least among the, the Western evangelical strain of the church, is that Jesus is going to come back, he's going to judge the world, and whisk those who trust in him off to, uh, to a, a better life in heaven, you know, here and after. Billy Sunday, who was a... a Outfielder for the Chicago White Sox turned evangelist used to say that the, the best thing that could happen to you in life is to come to the altar, give your life in Jesus, and then get hit by a truck. So you'd go straight to heaven. And essentially, like that is a theology of evacuation. And the sentiment is that this life is marked by sorrow and pain. And so salvation that God is, is bringing into the world is getting us out of this place to go somewhere else. And that makes this world and all of its problems as the thing to be avoided. And if that's true, then it is hard to imagine life as something other than basically running out the clock. Like, yeah, you may enjoy some good things here and there, but basically what you're trying to do is just wait it all out. It is hard to imagine, then, caring for injustice and pain and the brokenness of the world that is all going to burn anyway. But waiting and hoping for a kind of fairy tale rescue, is that the best there is? Just hanging around like those last few weeks of school, right? All, all of the exams are done now. We're just like, I don't know, watching movies and playing games, whatever. Is, is, is that what we are, are meant for, to just kind of hang out until we move on? What does the resurrection mean for now? Because the thing is, this is not how Jesus lived. He did not tell his disciples to, to stay locked up in an upper room and just wait it all out. He sent them into the world to participate in the work of making all things new. And that's not how the Bible story ends either with, with us just being whisked away. It ends with God coming back to renew and remake all things. N.T. Wright, whose 800-page book on the resurrection is kind of the gold standard, makes the point that the story at the end of the Bible isn't of our leaving and going to heaven. It is about what happens after that. It is about a God who comes from a renewed heaven to bring an Eden-like city into the world. 
to be with a people who have joined in his mission to the world. And so if we are a people who are shaped by the end that we live for, we need to know that the end that God has in mind is one in which he brings flourishing to all things. And this does not start in some far off better place in the future. It starts in the present now. So the question for all of us is, how do we live in a world where the dead are raised to life? Well, a few days after this confrontation in Jerusalem, the tomb that Jesus' body was laid in was discovered to be empty. And then Jesus just started popping up, breathing life into his disillusioned disciples who were convinced that the death that happened to him was going to happen to them next. And he was offering something entirely new. He was releasing something into the world that had the power to change everything. He was bringing hope. And that is what the resurrection, what all the the 50 days of appearances following it were all about, bringing hope into the world. And don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about some fairy tale kind of hope, the kind that puts a, a thick coat of wishful thinking on the world, the kind that buries the pain and brokenness of the of the present behind a painted-on smile and a sunny disposition. I mean, because the very worst explanations of the resurrection, the ones that want to, you know, kind of make you take a shower after you hear them, uh, make it sound like a fairy tale ending. You know, like Jesus' resurrection means you get to button up your shirt, move out to the suburbs and start driving a minivan and then spend a disproportionate amount of your life in church services. And then just waiting it out until you get your ticket to go somewhere else. That is not what I'm talking about. Fairy tale endings cheapen this life. Fairy tale endings cannot handle the, the disappointment, the confusion, the grief, the unmet expectations, the unrequited longing, the anger, the poverty, the suffering, the loss, the real substance of life that put us on our backs. Fairy tale endings cheapen the complexity of this life, and Jesus' resurrection released hope into the world, not to cheapen this life, but to give it dignity. To trust in the resurrection is to place all of your hope in this story that Jesus is releasing into the world, is to acknowledge that at the center of the harsh reality of life, there is a gap that cannot be closed by by your or my best efforts. There is a, a dignifying sort of hope. And it sounds like this, that the universe we inhabit is a good creation of a God who is deeply grieved by the darkness that invades and haunts our lives. But this God is so relentless in hope and love that he stops at nothing to be in relationship with us. And he promises justice in the place of every societal failure. He promises restoration for every victim, forgiveness for every personal failure, and freedom from the guilt and shame that they drag in their wake. He promises that life, not death, will have the final word because death has been defeated. And so a dignifying hope is not some fairy tale utopia that you get swept off to when you are done mucking around in this world that you have screwed up. No, heaven is coming to earth. Hope means that you are able to live even now in that better story that Jesus is telling so that your very lives become participation in the coming redemption of the world. 
To borrow an idea from Philip Yancey, when it comes down to it, there are really just two ways to look at human history. You can focus on the brokenness of the past. You can see the the dysfunction of of violence, of oppression, of war, of abuse, of death. And and in that world, if resurrection happens at all, it, it is nothing more than a moment of exception where God stunningly contradicts every other pattern. But there is a second way, and it's called hope. Hope means that resurrection is a new starting point, that this is how God is going to deal with the world. Hope makes resurrection the ultimate reality and everything else the exception. And this is what Jesus is pointing to, not in just one argument that he had on one day. This is what he is pointing to with his whole life. He did not walk out of the grave to cheapen this life or to create a way to get us out of this world. He did it to dignify this life by bringing heaven to earth and to dignify you by giving you right now in the midst of this mess a way to participate in that redemption. And he offers you a story big enough to explain the complex mess that we call the world that's powerful enough to redeem every square inch through love, the sort of love that does not give up, the sort of love that swallows up fear, the sort of love that heals however quickly or slowly, the sort of love that outlasts the sting of pain. That is the resurrected life he is calling you to. And so the surprise that Jesus has isn't that there is hope just out there beyond this life It's that there is a hope that makes sense of the pain and the longing and the brokenness of now. And that hope is breaking into the world even now. You and I get to join with the God of the living even now and fill every moment with holy intent. Friends, these bodies that have seen pain, that have seen brokenness, they will be raised and made radiant. Your pain is not the last true thing about you. The last true thing about you is that God is coming to redeem and renew all of it. So my question, why not live in that world now? 